Um, I'm going to approach it just a little differently than normal. It's not that I wouldn't uh, complete the chapter today, because oftentimes I don't complete full chapters at one time. Uh, but I, I honestly believe that in, prepare, in preparing for tonight, that this was really going to be more from a standpoint of focusing on, on, a, on a particular topic more than, than just um, than just the verse by verse, which we're going to do anyway. But um, as we begin reading in verse 1, remember that this is a continuation of something that began actually in, in chapter 8, when God reappeared to uh, Ezekiel in his glory, because the whole, three, the whole theme of Ezekiel is the glory of God. And then he transports Ezekiel from Babylon to Jerusalem to see the things that were taking place within the temple and showing us the heart of the religious leaders who were leading the people of Israel and of Judah astray. And then he dug deep into the heart of the temple to show that they were worshiping idols, that they were worshiping the creature more than the creator. And this was the reason why that they were heading toward not only judgment, but this particular passage from chapter 8 on is dealing with the departure of the glory of God from the temple and from the people. So with that in mind, and of course we're not going to go back and review every chapter 8, eight through 10, we're just going to begin here in verse 11. Notice that it says, Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house. Now he had gone to the temple where the glory of God had moved from the Holy of Holies to the, to the door of, of the temple on the east side as it was heading out the east gate. So it says, Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the east gate of the Lord's house, which looketh eastward, and behold, at the door of the gate, five and twenty men. So twenty-five men. These are not really the same twenty-five men of chapter eight, and I'll talk about that later. Among whom I saw Yazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pilatia, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. So we know they're different from the 25 because the 25 in the temple back in chapter 8 were actually more of the religious leaders or the priests. Whereas here, these are more of the civil leaders. When called princes, of course, then they're more or less like the civil magistrates or the civil leaders of the people. And then said he unto me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city, which say, it is not near. Speaking of the judgment, the judgment is not near. Let us build houses. This city is the cauldron, like a, a big cooking pot. This city is the cauldron, and we be the flesh, or we be the meat. In other words, we're going to be in this big cauldron, and we're not going to be exposed to the fire. We're going to be inside, and we're going to be safe. Therefore, prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. Now, you, you've probably heard the statement, it's all about perspective, right? You, all, you probably have heard that at some time. I've said it a few times myself. It's all about perspective. So let me show you some visible examples of that statement. First of all, there's this uh, picture of uh, uh, two, two slides. Uh, one here, there's a guy on a little, little island. And, you know, he's been stranded on this island for who knows how long. And he sees a boat, so he says, boat! But then you look at the next slide and you see a guy in the boat now looking at him from, a, from his perspective. And he says, you know, he's probably been stranded out in sea for all this time. And he says, land! It's all about perspective, you see. 
Let's look at the next slide. Well, that's uh, kind of interesting. Is It's a visual perspective. Of course, this person's hand isn't that big to encircle the Eiffel Tower, but you get the picture. Still getting that ring, Andrew, if you can kind of... Yeah, it's, it's, I can hear it, and it's kind of distracting. And then the next one. Notice three perspectives. The first one over here is the father sees, you know, he's just throwing his child up a certain height. And then as the child sees, he really likes to go up a little higher. But then the mother sees him where? Just about uh, supersonic out of here. <laughs> it's all perspective, isn't it? Keep that in mind, please. When we talk about perspective here in our text in just a little while. So let me say that as we get into chapter 11 of Ezekiel, perspective is all about responses as well. The responses of the people and the responses of God. And we're going to see that in just a moment, so we'll come back to that. But we know from our previous studies from chapter 8 on that, uh, from chapter 8 on, that the major cause for God to withdraw his presence and glory from the people was their wicked leadership. When leaders are wicked, their sinful behavior influences others. And so the Lord holds them more accountable for their behavior because of their positions of authority. In no uncertain terms, the the Lord laid the major responsibility for Israel's corruption upon the religious and the civil leaders. Now, you have to understand that they always work together. In Israel today as well, you know, there is a, a civil leadership, as it were, the Knesset. But there's also the rabbinical leadership And they, from time to time, work together. From time to time, they don't see eye to eye. You know, you've oftentimes heard the statement, whenever you have two rabbis, you have three opinions. Okay. But they they still have this connection in that land. As democratic as we know Israel to be in the Middle East, the only democratic society in the Middle East, Nonetheless, there, there's, a, there's a connection between their civil leadership and their religious leadership. And in fact, it is the state of Israel because of the God of Israel. So we, so we know that. So when both sides begin to turn away from God, what do you have? A people without a leadership. A people who have no leaders who are trusting the God of the nation. I find it sad to say that that is the way it is in our country now in the 21st century. That we don't really have a leadership that trusts in God as we had in times past. Whereas in the beginning of this particular nation, we we were founded on the principles, uh, the uh, the Judeo-Christian principles of the word of God. Our laws were based on the word of God. The very fact that this nation was born out of a, of a group of men who fell on their knees before God, who never started any of their constitutional meetings at all without prayer, without seeking the face of God for, for guidance and leadership. Where has all that gone? Now you want to pray on the steps of the Capitol and they'll throw you out. You want to sing the national anthem and, and, and do something patriotic at the uh, at, uh, uh, the World Trade Center, ground zero, and and people will tell you you can't do that. There's a lot of things that are going on in this country that are just uh, very clear that we are in in the times that the Bible speaks of so close and near to the coming of Jesus Christ. And you might think that I'm trying to drive, drive this in everything that I say, but The reality is that if you go from Genesis to Revelation, you find that the word of God is always headed in this direction for us in this world today. Everything that happened in the book of Genesis was was a preview of what we're seeing today. Even Jesus himself said, as in the days of Noah, 
So shall it be when the, in the coming of the Son of Man. As in the days of Lot, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Everything was given so that we could say, we look back and say, wow, this is the way God wants us to be. And to be ready when he comes. So, it's, it's really significant to know that this, this last part of the vision of the Lord, which the Lord gave to Ezekiel in chapter 8, is a continuation of what God wanted him to behold as to the conditions prevailing in Jerusalem and, and the Lord's attitude toward them. Now, the Lord made known these things to the prophet in order that he might press home upon the consciences of those who had been taken captive the importance of heeding the word of God. As it was given by Jeremiah that the captives should settle down in the lands wherein they had been placed by their conquerors and should build houses and plant vineyards and prepare for a long stay in the land. This is, this is the word of God that came to Jeremiah to give to the people. Listen, don't listen to these false prophets who say, no, you know, you're, we're only going to be gone for a little while, you know, so don't settle yourself down. We're, we're coming back. God's going to honor us. God's going to honor our faith in him. But that was not what God had, 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 had intended. Because those same ones who were saying, listen, we're, we're going to prosper. We're prospering now. We're going to be okay. We're the false prophets. And this burdens my heart because sometimes I, I, I turn on the TV and I, I listen to some guys that are just going on and on about, you know, how wonderful life is and how great it can be. And you just need to be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise and well. And, and they, they don't know one thing about what the Bible says about the coming of Jesus Christ. Or one thing that really matters. And people are filling churches today because they want to feel good. And it used to be, it used to be years ago, you know, I would really tell people, come on, you got to come to church on Wednesday night. We've got to study the word of God. You know, this is what God wants us to do. And, you know, the, 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 the few that came, it was okay. But, you know, a pastor's, you know, pastor's heart. For, oh, I feel, we got these chairs here for a reason. We've got to fill them, you know. I'll put, I'll put the rocks on them, I guess. The Bible says, you know, even the rocks one day will cry out. If we, if we don't cry out, the rocks will. So look, I'm going to put rocks on all these chairs that are, that are full. But I've grown up a little bit since then. It's only been 32 years. I figured at some point I'm going to grow up a little bit. But I realize, you know, that in these last days, it's hard for people to hear. I'm not, I'm not coming down on the people that aren't here tonight, you know, from the, from the Sunday mornings. I'm so, so blessed to see how many people come to church on, on the weekends. But what I'm saying is, you know, this, this, is, this is kind of a, a picture of, of what we're struggling with in the church today. But there was a time frame, and God said, listen, you need to settle down. It's going to be at least, four, it's going to be at least 70 years. It's going to be at least 70 years. And it would be 70 years. During which time the land of Israel was to keep the Sabbath because they had not kept the Sabbath. The reason why they went into captivity was because they never kept the Sabbath land or the, the Sabbath year for the land to rest as God had commanded them you see but the false prophets had prophesied otherwise mocking God and his true prophets look at turn to Jeremiah 28 we're going to be in Jeremiah for just a little bit because we need we need to kind of uh, kind of lay the foundation for the understanding of this this whole prophecy that uh, is, is envisioned that's being given to uh, Ezekiel so in Jeremiah 28 Verses 1 through 4, it says, And it came to pass the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur the prophet, which was, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now remember, if, well, if you go back to chapter 27, you realize that, that Ezekiel, I mean, I'm sorry, Jeremiah has already made a, a, give, been given a prophecy from the Lord actually about the yoke of bondage that is to come upon Israel as well as other nations. And I'll talk about them in just a moment. 
So that's chapter 27. He gives a prophecy that God is saying he's going to bring judgment upon these nations and including Judah. But this prophet says, no, the God of Israel says, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. He's the one that's going to be defeated within two full years. And notice what he says, within two full years. Now, what do you expect? That at the end of two years, this God is going to destroy Babylon, right? Because that's what he's saying. Within two full years will I bring again into this place, speaking of Jerusalem and the temple, all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took away from this place and carry them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place uh, Yekoniah, the son of uh, Jehoiakim, uh, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So this guy didn't like the king that's already in place, which God had put there. No, he wants the elder king to come back, you see. So this was indeed a false prophecy. Jeremiah had already prophesied, as I said in the previous chapter, of the bonds and yokes of enslavement to come upon Edom, upon Moab, upon Ammon, upon Tyre, and Zidon, and Judah, by the Babylonians that were, who were to come, symbolized by bonds and yokes that Jeremiah had placed upon himself under the command of the Lord. The Lord says, you put those bonds on your hands. You put the yoke over your head. You're symbolizing what's going to happen to Judah and these other nations by Babylon's hands. And it was in defiance of this prophecy that Hananiah declared his own prophecy later to break the yoke that was on Jeremiah. He would go in, in chapter 28 later on and he'd go and take the, the yoke and he breaks it in defiance of the prophecy of Jeremiah that came from the Lord. And what did that do? It only prompted his own death two months later. Because read in verses 15 through 17 of chapter 28. Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Remember, when the prophecy was, was, was given, it was two months earlier in the fifth month. Two months later, Hananiah is gone dead, judged by God for being a false prophet, judged by God. So before we get back to our text, it is important to note that the, there was a letter that was sent from Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon concerning their need to stay for the long haul. So if you'll go on to verse uh, 4 of chapter 29, just go to the next page. And there in chapter 29, verse 4, it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Remember, this is Jeremiah sending this letter. Unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be buried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon, build ye houses and dwell in them. Now, where are they going to be? Babylon. He says, build your houses there. And dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take you wives and beget sons and daughters. In other words, continue on. Continue to grow. Continue to be the people I want you to be. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. I'm not going to let you waste away in Margaritaville. I'm just trying to see if you're paying attention to me. In Babylon. Okay? Did I get your attention? Okay. I don't want you to waste away in Babylon. You increase. You grow. I'll protect you. I'll, I'll provide for you there. I can't even believe I said that myself. Okay. Forgive me, Lord. Okay. And then it says, And seek the peace of the city. Listen. Seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall you have peace. No matter where you are, I'm still your God. And if you trust in me, I will be your peace. But it is in the next section of this passage, stay there, 
in the next section of this passage that the warning goes out once again against concerning, again, against, or I should say again, concerning the false prophets. It is also in this passage that the Lord gives the length of time and the promise of restoration. So let's read on, verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. I, I find it quite interesting today. You can go into Christian bookstores and there are books about all kinds of dreams and, and dream, you know, like dream reality or dreamality or whatever, you know. I mean, this, I, it, 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 it burdens my heart. Because we're, we're, we're looking at just all kinds of little other outlets to say, well, you know, the word of God is okay. And sometimes we get a little bit of, you know, you'll find some scripture in some of these books. You'll find scriptures in, in new age books that are te- totally teaching you to walk away from God in a way, but, not, but, not, but saying it in a nice way. We, we need to, I mean, we need to discern the spirits of you know, whether they be of God or not. Where, what happened to that discernment? I know that I taught a message on that not too long ago, but what happened to that discernment? For, the, for they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years, so there's the time frame, after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. Now look at this promise here. If you just hold on and you'll be there 70 years, your families, your homes, your gardens and everything else, sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and whatever, to hold on in 70 years, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place Jerusalem, Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you an expected end. Some translations say to give you a future and a hope. That's an expected end. I would want that expected end for every one of you here. The future of God and the hope of God. And that's what God is saying. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. When did we ever think that God was, was, was just so hard that you know, all he wants to do is beat on his people? You know, when Jesus told Peter to tend the flocks, he says, look, Peter... Feed the sheep. Don't beat the sheep. Well, you know, when we start beating ourselves up, the Lord has to, has to come and, and say, whoa, I'm not beating you, so what, what are you doing? Because we'll beat ourselves when we, when we flunk and fail, when we falter and, and struggle. Or somebody else will do it, somebody who's a little bit more on the legalistic side. And they look down on us. And I don't, I'm only looking down on you because I'm up here on the platform, but in reality, my heart's with you. We don't, we don't look down on anyone. Notice verse 12. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. I'll listen. You shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. You know, those, those words are for today as well. You shall seek me and find me. But my concern as a pastor today is, are you you seeking the Lord? Are you really seeking God? And then I have to get in front of a mirror and say, are you seeking God too? So we need to do that. When you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you, saith the Lord, or found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place 
whence I caused you to be carried away captive. I wanted to make sure that we realize that every opportunity that the ch children of Israel had, whether the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Israel, all they had to do was search, seek the Lord. All they had to do was seek. And the Lord said, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you search for me, first of all, you've got to search for him. But if you search for me with all your heart. And then he says, then I'll do these things. Then I will rescue you. And I'll bring you back where I want you to be. For us, he brings us back where he wants us to be, as near his heart, because we've walked away sometimes. We've gone off on our own quest for something. I could, I could give you a list a mile long for all the things that some people go after as, a, as far as, you know, a, some, hey, listen, people are trying to find themselves all the time. Can I tell you? You're right here. You don't have to go very far to know where you are. You're here. Where your heart is. Where is that? What did Jesus say? Where's your heart? What about the treasures of your heart? That's where your heart is. Lay up your, tre lay up your, your treasures in heaven where the things of this world cannot get to and steal and destroy for where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. We have to examine ourselves. What, what is the treasure of our heart? If it isn't the Lord himself. And where is he? <laughs> but seated at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. Where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. Some people will treasure their children more than anything in this world, and it's not a bad thing, but I mean, it is a bad thing when we make them the full treasure of our lives and put our full weight of, you know, of, 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 of attention in that. I'm not telling you not to love your children. I'm just telling you that sometimes we overdo it. Or the things of this world. The things of this world. You know, we, we can say in a token manner, you know, well, yeah, I believe in God. He provided all these things. But inside you're saying, no, well, actually it was me. It was my wisdom, my, you know, my money, my, my way of doing things. I mean, we have a, a candidate for president right now that only on the outside has to say, has to say, He's a Christian, and he's proud of it. That's what Donald Trump says. I'm a Christian, and I'm proud of it. I'm a Presbyterian, and I'm proud of it. But he's also been questioned as to whether he's asked God for forgiveness, and he doesn't even know if he has. What does that tell you? The man who was brash enough to lift up a Bible in his hand and, and call Ted Cruz a liar was, the very, was speaking of his own self. Well, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you what I saw on TV. Just telling you what I've heard. And this is the same person that many people who are Christians are saying, yes, we need him as president. What a far cry from a person like George Washington who fell on his knees during the time of the greatest battles of the revolution for the freedoms that we have cherished for over 250, almost 300 years. But where are, they, where are those treasures now? Where, or should they, where are those freedoms now, you see? And where are we going from here? What are, what are the alternatives? A communist and... Okay, well, I'm not even going to go on there. You say, well, you shouldn't talk about politics and church. No, we should. Because the life of this nation depends on it. And where it is today is not in a very good place. So many people are being carried away captive 
by the imag imaginations of their own heart, thinking that the, the one thing that is going to save this country is a person. No, no, the only thing that will save anything in this country, if he deems it to be necessary to save, is God himself and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we would want that because we love this country. We would want that because we love those who have served this country and are serving this country today. Many of them are our own family members. We don't wish anything well, uh, bad for them. We can only wish the best for them. Because they go you know, as, as, as soldiers are. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew this about the soldiers that were serving the Roman army. When they would themselves would come to him and he knew what their heart was all about. Serving a pagan country. Well, guess what? This is a pagan country today. Even though it wasn't a few years ago. I guess I could go on and on, but we'd be here till about 11.30. So with these things in mind, is it any wonder that there are so many problems within the body of Christ today? As it pertains to the times of the end and the, end, and the events of the latter days, concluding with the second coming of Jesus Christ to the very same city of Jerusalem? In the very same land we call Israel today? It appears to me that the conditions that existed in Israel when Jeremiah and Ezekiel were warning of God's judgment to come exist in our own country today. Jesus told a parable to his disciples about waiting and watching for the Lord's return. It, it was his answer to, to Peter's question that strengthens and confirms the problems in the church today. I'd like for you to look at it. It's Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 41 through 48. Luke 12, 41. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, notice, please notice this verse. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing, being a faithful and wise steward. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But, and if, that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. And shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens. And to eat and to drink and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not before him. And at an hour when he is not aware. And will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Now of course I'm, I'm reading ahead of, a, of the parable I was told before uh, the, the verse I gave you. But let's read on. And, and that servant which, know, which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself. Notice. He knew the Lord's will. How can we not know the Lord's will if we say that we believe and, and trust in the word of God and read the word of God? So that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself. So you know what it, the word says, but you don't prepare yourself. Neither did, according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto, whom so, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. So like in all of this, at least from this particular side of the parable, like in all of this to the word of God today, being so prominent, I mean it should be so prominent throughout the throughout the. the uh, the known church of Jesus Christ. But what have we seen happen? So much has changed. You see, when the full counsel of the word of God is taught from Genesis to Revelation, there is nothing that can be held back in what is presented to the children of God. You don't hold anything back if you teach Genesis to Revelation from the word of God in church. The way it's supposed to be. And we have gone through the word of God in this church. And many of the chapters. But we've gone through this. Uh, from, the, from the onset of this church. 
We've touched upon every book. We've, we've studied every book. And when the full counsel of the word of God is taught, there's nothing that can be held back in what is to be presented to the children of God. Tears of burdens and tears of joy are often shared and should be as the scriptures are instructed and exhorted and rebuked and corrected and, and commended to the believer in Jesus Christ. In fact, when you read what Paul said, and I, and I know we covered this a couple of weeks ago, uh, but when Paul was, was, was speaking to the, the Ephesian elders in Miletus, what he said was, I, you know, I, I stayed with you and just taught you, I mean, to the point of tears, to make sure that you're getting the word of God. But nowhere, listen, nowhere is there found any foundation for entertainment on the level of the world to be the great attraction that would lead to corporate merchandising and marketing of things far from the pure truth of God's word. When you start hearing things like seeker-friendly churches or emerging or emergent churches or movements that seek to, and by the way, listen, I, I, I feel, you know, we, we had this, this conference about three years ago, we're going to have to have another one to refill our minds with, with the truths of the word of God, to realize we're even closer now to seeing more of these things happening all around us and on TV and on, you know, the internet and whatnot. But seeker-friendly emerging uh, or emergent movements that seek to listen. These are, these are key words that you'll listen to. Re-examine, reinvent, or reimagine the church. Re-examine Christianity. Reinvent Christianity. Reimagine Christianity. Th those are the call words of the emerging church. Like, what, is it, what needs to be changed? What needs to be changed? Let's re-examine. Re-examine what? The scriptures tell us real clearly the word of God doesn't need any changing. The word of God tells us that God himself is immutable, which means he cannot be changed. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Needs no changing. So what do we need to re-examine? These are the way that things are being done in the church while, while putting a postmodern relative... Uh, postmodern relative twist to things, you know, relativity. Laying aside the Bible for conversational experiences while embracing other religions as relevant and compatible while criticizing those who believe wholeheartedly the Word of God is, you know, we today are being called Bible worshipers. I don't worship the Bible, I worship the God of the Bible. I worship the God who created the heavens and the earth, but we need his word to know him. These are the very things that have challenged the church in these last days to stay faithful to the truth that Jesus is coming again very soon. And, I, and I'll, be, I'll tell you right now, I'll, I'll probably tell you at the very end, but I have nothing to apologize for. And I will not. I don't care what anybody says. Add to this the very reformed positions concerning the end times. Things like amillennialism. I'm not going to get into the description of it, but an amillennialist is one who believes that there, there, you know, there's, there's really not, uh, there, there are no distinctions in time in the scriptures as far as the end time is concerned. So, you know, there's no thousand year reign of Christ. It's just kind of a, you know, stated as some kind of allegory or, or, or metaphoric statement. That's an amillennialist. That there's the preterist who, who says, a preterist is one who believes that everything has already been, every prophecy has already been fulfilled. Everyone. That to me is the craziest one. When we see today what's happening and the Bible is being fulfilled on a daily basis, the, the prophecies of the Bible, or post-millennialism, which means that if there is a, a, mil, if there is a thousand year reign of Christ, uh, you know, then, then uh, the coming of the Lord will be after, which is, doesn't make sense either. I mean, it's, uh, these, are, these are Catholic positions as well, in some cases. So all of those who hold to these positions scoff at the literal return of Jesus Christ for his church. They scoff, for, they scoff at the rapture of the church. 
They scoff at his, his establishment of his kingdom in the city of Zion, which is Jerusalem in present-day Israel. They become political too because they say, listen, that Israel that's there in the land is not the Israel of the Bible. That Israel is the, is the oppressor. These are the, the people that are running down the Palestinians and we need to get on the Palestinian side. Boy, I don't know what Bible they have. But I can tell you this, when you have watered down the Bible from taking good texts like the King James and New King James uh, uh, translations and then watering them down to where you just even don't even know, you can't even recognize certain verses of Scripture, which is, what, which is what was done with something called the message. I hope you don't have one of those, but if you did, you know, get, get, don't, don't use it. I'm, it's not going to be compatible with what we teach here. I'll be honest with you, I, t- I teach it from the King James Version because for 400 years it's been the standard for the scriptures, uh, for the church. And it's still, it's still relevant and I teach you what it says and, and you know, if, if these and thous bother you, well, you know, don't worry about it. The point of the matter is, the manuscript is reliable. But that's another matter for another time. But all of this adds to the eschatological struggle that exists in the church today. Eschatological is just a really $1.50 word for the end time studies of the Bible. And many in these camps do listen, many of people in these camps don't even believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. They do not believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And obviously they won't believe in his literal return. If they can't believe in those two things, they're not going to believe that he's going to come again. But I believe it because Jesus said he's going to. And I believe it because he also stated when that's going to happen. And what's going to be happening before it happens, when it happens, and after it happens. He hasn't, he, Jesus has never left a stone unturned. Except for the time, because we don't know the day or the hour. That's why he says, be ready. Therefore, they will not believe literally in most prophecies. So the prophets and the apostles all knew what was to take place in the times of the end, that they were as literal as all that took place in their own times. If they were literal for their times, it's, literal for, it's going to be literal for our times. And their exhortation and admonition to the children of Israel and the church of Jesus Christ respectively, in other words, the prophets and the apostles to the, uh, to the children of Israel and to the church respectively, were based on being obedient to God's word. I mean, listen to Paul very quickly. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, look, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? Answer, verse 13. Looking for the, that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. What is that? We're looking for his return. So what are we to be doing? Living soberly, righteously, and godly. We're looking for the one who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. These things, he says, speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. But churches today are saying, listen, we're, we're a very progressive church. I mean, we're sophisticated here. We, we, we invite everybody to come in, no matter what. You know, so they go and march at these uh, gay pride parades, you know, and banners with church names on it. And we're, we're, we're with you guys. I said, you better be with God. Because God has something to say about that sin. Romans 13. Paul again in verses 11 through 14. And that knowing the time. Knowing the time. That now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Wow, if it was high time 2,000 years ago, it's high time now. A lot higher time than it was before. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. So if he said that nearly 2,000 years ago, aren't you, don't you think we're a little closer now? Even more? 
The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Listen, we've got to pay attention to what the Word of God says about our lives in this world as we wait for Jesus to come. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness. You've heard about some of the emerging churches meeting in little nightclubs and bars, you know, and they'll, you know, they'll sit there, you know, opening their, you know, their terrible translations and drink a beer while they're doing it. Because that's, that's progressive, that's, that's, that's uh, sophisticated, that's, you know, that's how far we've come, really. Not in chambering and wantonness. Not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Like a, like a garment, put Jesus on. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the chapter that, that gives us a, the clear picture of the rapture of the church. We're not going to go there. We're going to go to verse 1. Why? Because it's the very first verse of that chapter that lends to, the, to what that whole chapter is going to be about. It says, Further than, furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Why? Because a few verses later, he's going to say, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, but the Lord's coming. And the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to, uh, to be received uh, by the Lord, to be gathered together by him. So we know, we know that. You can read that later. Peter, the, the apostle Peter, says in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Do you see the emphasis here? This is all about the Lord coming. This is all about the day of the Lord. This is all about this. This part is actually pointing us also to the tribulation period that follows the rapture of the church. But the, the point is, how should you be living? What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation or conduct and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. By the way, I haven't forgotten about the, the statement, it's all about perspective. I haven't forgotten about it. I don't know about you, but it's really warm up here. And I thought, well, maybe with the warmness, I probably will forget something. But no, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. It's all about perspective. I want you to get back to Ezekiel 11 now. Now the Bible study, Bible study starts. The prophet was taken by the Spirit to the east gate where he saw 25 civil leaders seated at the door of the gate, including one named Yazaniah, son of Azur. By the way, I mentioned this because he's considered to be the brother of Hananiah, who's also father's, his father's name was Azur, the false prophet we mentioned earlier, who mocked and defied Jeremiah's prophecy. These were not, as I said, the same 25 who were the religious leaders in chapter 8, but let's, let's read verses 1 to 3. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the east gate of the Lord's house, which looketh eastward and behold at the gate at the door of the gate of the, uh, at the door of the gate five and twenty men among whom I saw Yazaniah the son of Azur and Pelatiah the son of Baniah Baniah uh, princes of the people and then said he unto me son of man these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city which say it is not near let us build houses this city is the cauldron the cooking pot and we be the flesh now verse two tells us that these men were guilty of plotting evil and giving the, pe the people wicked counsel. They denied God's warning of coming judgment and urged the people to continue their building projects there in, in Jerusalem and to trust in the city's military defenses. 
They said that these defenses offer the same protection as a cooking pot offers meat set over a fire. So you get into that perspective? As a cooking pot keeps meat from being burned, so the city would protect the citizens who place their trust in its defenses. Simply, the leaders were encouraging the people to trust in the city, not in the Lord. And so the Lord instructed Ezekiel to issue a strong warning to the leaders. Verse 4, therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, speak, thus saith the Lord. Thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. You have multiplied your slain in this city. You have filled the streets thereof with the slain. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh, the meat. And this city is the cauldron, the cooking pot. But I will bring you forth out of the midst of it. It's all about perspective. This is God's perspective now. You have feared the sword. And I will bring a sword upon you, saith the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst thereof and deliver you into the hands of strangers and will execute judgments among you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you in the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron. Neither shall you be the flesh in the midst thereof. But I will judge you in the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are round about you. And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. And then I fell, I, uh, then fell I down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? We're going to get into that part next week on verse 13. That's where we'll start next time. But the Lord knew, listen, the Lord knew their every thought. He knew they were denying his word and deceiving the people by their wicked counsel. Their evil plots and behavior were not hidden from God. He knew exactly what they were saying. He knew exactly what they were doing. And besides, he knew about the oppression of the people and their violent persecution of the righteous. The slain that it talks about were the slain who were the believers, the ones who trusted God. And it was a persecution that had filled the streets with dead believers. What's happening today in the Middle East with ISIS and and Al-Qaeda? Boko Haram in, in, in Africa. The persecution of those who don't believe like them. Not only persecution, but, but martyrdom. And crucifixions and, and uh, beheadings and you name it. Have we forgotten that that's happening today? Our media doesn't give us a good opportunity to see what's really happening. But we should know. Too often people in the church got their heads in in the sand, as it were. We're more concerned about, you know, lighting and all kinds of other things and entertaining and all kinds of other things than realizing we better tell people Jesus is coming. And we need to get right. God's hand of judgment would fall upon the wicked leaders. Contrary to what the wicked leaders thought, the righteous had been the real security and protection. And the meat, the flesh of the city, were those who believed God and trusted God. As long as the righteous lived in the city, they obeyed God's holy commandments and pleased him. So he had restrained his hand of judgment and kept it from falling upon the city. In effect, the Lord was saying, this city city you thought would protect you won't. Those whom you have killed will be better off for they died within this pot, within the walls of the city. But you're going to be removed from these walls of protection. This pot that you talked about, you see, it's all about perspective. God's perspective is a lot better than ours than man's. Their biggest fears, those things they try to escape from their, from, uh, from their own, were going to come upon them because they refused to repent and get right with God. And just as Ezekiel said, it came to pass. The walls of the city were broken down. The people were taken captive. 
and brought to a, the border of Israel a place called Riblah. And many people were put to death there. And the rest were taken as captives to Babylon. This was all prophesied, by the way. It was prophesied, and then it happened. They looked at Jerusalem as a place of protection, but the Lord was telling them it wouldn't be because judgment was coming. And the reason, once again, was to awaken them out of their spiritual sleep so that they would know that the Lord, he is Lord. He says, no, I am the Lord. I am the I am, is what he said. They had forgotten that fact, and they had walked away from him. And essentially, the Lord wants to draw them back. And as Ezekiel was prophesying, Pelatea drops dead. He was one of the princes that was mocking the word of God. But I want you to remember something. Something that the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians. Because he knew through the, through the wisdom and understanding and the power of the Holy Spirit, as he's writing to them, he knew that even those who were Judaizers at one time were moving back toward the law. And, and, he, and he got all over them. Having begun in the spirit, are you now going back to the flesh? And so toward the end of this letter to the Galatians, he says to them in, in, in Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to close with this. In Galatians 6 verses 7 through 10, he says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. In effect, when you, when you put all of this together, I mean, it, it, it is mockery to God when God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a new heart and a new spirit and a new way of doing things. And then they revert back to the flesh. That's mockery of the things of God. So he says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh, you feed your flesh, you you throw seed to your flesh, you know. Of the flesh shall reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life, life everlasting. Are you sowing to the flesh or are you sowing to the Spirit? I would hope that it's the Spirit. And let us not be weary in well-doing. There have been people who have just gotten weary waiting for the Lord to come. I mean, they've been hearing it for a long time. I've known people that back in the day when, you know, we first came to the Lord back in the early 70s, they were, oh yeah, the Lord's coming at any moment. Then he doesn't come. He said, well, he's not coming. Oh, well, you know, okay, you know, so you've got to go on. Then you get a little weary. I think I mentioned this, you know, that when I heard Pastor Chuck Smith talk about about the coming of the Lord. He was so excited all the time. He was excited in the 70s. He was excited in the 80s. He was excited in the 90s. He was excited at the turn of the century, you know. And now he's excited because he's with the Lord. And we need to stay excited. And that's why Paul says, let us not be weary in well-doing. Let's continue on. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Why have, we, why, have, why have so many moved into all these areas? Of, because they're looking for something. Because they, 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 they've, uh, they fainted in, in the word of God. I mean, they just, they just kind of gotten away from it. Listen, we need to stay there. I tell you what, this is the food that keeps us from fainting in, in, in the seasons in which we live. And then he says in verse 10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. That is what I believe that God has called me to do. And that is to do good to those of you who are in the house of faith by giving you the truth. Giving you the truth, feeding you the truth. And not just, just going off, uh, you know, no. I, there's a lot of study involved. There's a lot of things that we have to, because uh, I don't want to be wrong. 
That's why I have a big pulpit, because I want you to see my knees are knocking all the time. I'm responsible before God for you. So I'm not going to give you just junk food. Today was steak. So enjoy the meal. You might say, that was hard to enjoy, but so is steak sometimes with my teeth. It's really, you know, it's hard to chew on those. Teeth are getting old. But you understand what we're talking about. You understand. Okay. There was meat here. There was milk. There was bread. I, I don't want to give you anything less than what God wants you to have. So, but we got to do something with it, right? Let's believe it. Let's trust it. Let's live it. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father for the privilege that you've given us today to concentrate on your word to focus on it to be filled Lord with the understanding that you want us to have about the days in which we live and the things that we need to do until that day comes so Father today we, we just honor you and bless you and we ask that you would have your way with us tonight as we go home and rest Lord may we also meditate on your word May we remember it, may we ponder it, may we consider it, Lord God, to be that food that you truly want us to have, to feed upon, and that we might grow in it. And Lord, I don't want to exclude the mercies and the grace that you've given us, because this is not just about, you know, being so strong and, you know, kind of looking down on things. No, it's It's the very fact that you've given us mercy and grace to have and to give. But that has to be hand in hand with your truth. So give us all the proper understanding. Give us the proper perspective and the proper attitude of heart so that we serve you and worship you and love you in spirit and in truth. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.